Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. This is episode 28 in the book of John, entitled Predictions, Betrayal, and Denial, where we discuss John chapter 13, verses 18 through 38. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, they're dominated by Jesus' predictions of Judas's betrayal and of Peter's denial. And yet, in the middle of this uh, section, we're going to see him talking about a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Mm. So we see Jesus' amazing love for a sinful people and how that becomes a pattern for the way we love one another. Um, in all of this, the predictions uh, show Jesus' supernatural knowledge of the future, uh, which gives us more evidence of his deity. So there's a lot in this section. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 18 through 38 for our listeners so that they know where we're at, and then we'll discuss this passage together. Beginning in verse 18, it says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Andy, right away, when Jesus said, I'm not speaking of all of you, he was reflecting back on the foot washing lesson, saying that blessing would come through obedience, as we saw in verse 17. Why didn't that apply to all of those listening to Jesus? Well, there's Judas. And as it says at the end of John 6, when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? After so many of Jesus' disciples had deserted him and fled. Now you got the apostles, the 12. 
And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus answered, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Mm. So he's very mindful of election and reprobation. And he has inside information. He knows very clearly who is who. And so he, I think, says this so that Judas's betrayal will not cause his true disciples to stumble and to fall away in that Jesus had somehow failed them uh, or he didn't see it coming, et cetera. Actually, and he's going to do the same thing with the persecution as he says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so when it happens, you'll know that I am God. So the prediction is really for the benefit of the elect, but he is very clearly eliminating Judas from the picture here. Yeah. So talk a little more about that. So Jesus predicts the betrayal ahead of time in front of them all, like you yeah. said, to really uh, strengthen them for what's coming. I think mm -hmm. prepare them for what they're about to experience. Mm -hmm. How does verse 20 fit into that train of thought uh, from Jesus from verse 19? Yeah. What he's saying here is that his word is is life for them. It's everything. The, the word of God is that by which they will be saved. And so if you um, accept his word and you accept his testimony, you will understand him and you will accept ultimately God who sent Christ. And so fundamentally what he's saying here is the prediction of Judas's betrayal should only strengthen their faith mm. uh, so that when he falls away, they will realize everything's right on schedule. Now what he says here in verse 20, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Fundamentally what he's saying is he's speaking to the rest of us saying that the true apostles that he's sending out who in John 20 he's going to breathe on them and say receive the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent me I'm sending you. He's saying look there are true sent ones who are truly bringing the message, if you accept them and believe them, mm. you're really accepting me and accepting ultimately God. So he's making a distinction between the true and false apostles. In verse 21, we see this phrase, troubled in spirit. Mm -hmm. Why was Jesus troubled in spirit? Yeah. And what insight does this give us into Jesus' emotional life and his relationship mm -hmm. to those he has not chosen, like yeah. Judas? One of the great mysteries for me as somebody who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, and especially, most importantly, over human salvation, is the sorrow of God over the reprobate. Mm. That God and, and Christ, as a perfect reflection of his Father, grieves deeply over lost people, mm. grieves deeply over the rebellion of Jerusalem, uses very painful imagery like a wayward wife in Hosea, saying, do you realize how you are breaking my heart? And the sorrow, you see it again and again in the book of Isaiah. The, the, I reared children and brought, up, brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. And, and just the lamentation of God over the wicked rebellion of humans, it's a mystery to me. Because God can convert anyone anytime. He can take out the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh. He can take Saul of Tarsus from bring, be, being a murderous threat against the church and change him in an instant. Mm -hmm. So also scripture says in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. So we could almost say, if you're sad, be happy. Fix it. Do something about but, it. But yeah. God, for his own purposes, chooses rather to lament and grieve mm. than transform radically the Judas and all that. And I don't go over into the into the Arminian free will thing where God's like, there's nothing I can do. It's up to them. That isn't biblical. God, there's much he can do. Uh, all things are possible with God. Mm -hmm. And so really the sorrowing of God, the grief 
of God over a Judas is a great mystery, but it just shows the reality of what's really happening here. So Jesus was legitimately troubled in spirit over the betrayal by Judas, though he knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. What does the fact that Jesus' disciples didn't know right away that Jesus was speaking of Judas teach us about Judas's outward appearance up oh, wow. to that point? It's a very important point. Uh, even right to the, to, the, to the end here, they thought he was going to buy something for the feast or give something to the poor. Hmm. So they didn't even follow the train of thought or the conversation. Right. We're talking about betrayal, what you're about to do, do quickly, hands him a piece of bread, um, whatever, and then Judas goes out. It's like, well, I don't know, was he? he's getting some things. They, they didn't track it, mm. but frequently they were obtuse. As Jesus said, are you still so dull? They didn't get it. Later they understood. Mm. So, uh, but what it shows me ultimately is Judas looked like all the rest of them. There is what I would call in local church ministry the Judas principle. Somebody can look really good, and they're not. Mm. You can fool me in the member interview, or if you if you come seeking baptism, I'll ask you some questions. If you give me the right answers, I'll baptize you. But if you're not genuinely converted, that baptism won't do you any good at all. Uh, ultimately, in heaven, uh, ultimately on Judgment Day, it will not it will not help you at all. So you can fool me, and so Judas had them all fooled, but not Jesus. And I think I've appreciated that in your ministry, even in the new member weekend. Mm -hmm. You know having people ask that question, you know, yeah. examine your own heart, examine yourself, because yeah. you can fool us in a membership interview. You Won't can, you you can have all of the right <laughs> trappings on the outside, but it's really a matter of the heart. And so I appreciate that even yeah. about the way we approach membership and asking folks, hey, make sure that yeah. you have trusted in Christ. But here's the, here's the flip side, and it's interesting because we talked about this earlier uh, today. Uh, as I'm working on sermons in 1 Corinthians 13, it says really interestingly, love bears all things, believes all mm. things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, you're bearing and enduring sinners. So you're believing and hoping concerning sinners. Hmm. So basically then in a local church, despite the Judas principle, you just want to hold that in the background. Yeah. If someone presents themselves to you as a believer in Christ, believe it, hmm. accept it. It's That's what good. we call the judgment of charity. It's like you if you look like a Christian and talk like a Christian and act like one, I'm going to think of you as a Christian. Because honestly, I'm not your judge. Sure. I'm free in the matter. You look yeah. like a Christian, I'm going to hug you or shake your hand or or do have fellowship with you and we'll we'll serve together and for the most part, that's how it is. Somebody who talks like a Christian, acts like a Christian is a Christian. Yeah. And it's so helpful because otherwise I think we're just constantly skeptical of each other yeah. and then questioning ah, <clears throat> well, you could imagine, think about what it's like in extreme circumstances in the, behind the Iron Curtain during, the, during communism mm -hmm. or during the Nazi terror. You couldn't trust anybody. Mm. And you could imagine how, how let's say, uh, um, you know, an underground group, uh, French resistance and all that. There couldn't be warm-hearted fellowship. It was life or death. And they couldn't really trust each other the way they wanted to. But in the church, we're free from that. Mm. If somebody is a Judas and acts for 98% of the time that we know him like a genuine Christian, we didn't do the wrong thing by treating them like a genuine Christian. Mm. So we've spoken now uh, for a minute or two about Jesus and his relationship with Judas. What do we learn about Jesus' relationship with John and Peter in verses 23 through 25 of this passage? Mm -hmm. Well, um, and, you know, there's, there's so much to say here. And I want to say something about Satan entering into uh, Judas too, so let's not lose that. But, sure. but it's, um, it's really amazing. There, there, are, there were circles of intimacy um, with Jesus. There was the inner circle 
um, of Peter, James, and John. They went up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, so they were his closest ones. Then you got the 12, and they're closer than all the other disciples. All of the apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. And so these were chosen after a night of prayer to be with him and to spend time with him and have that level of access and intimacy. Um, frankly, I think that's what it, it, Jesus means. We'll get to this when he says, it's to your benefit that I go away. Mm. Um, because it just has to do with access. It seems of all of them, the one closest to Jesus was John. He was the disciple whom Jesus loves. He never names himself in this gospel, though he wrote it. And he is close to Jesus, and he's reclining, and and Peter knows that he doesn't have John's access. He's like, he's, he's like Peter's the leader, but John... He's your favorite. I know he's your favorite. And it's like, well, he's not, but but there was that intimacy. And, and so he's reclining, um, leaning back against Jesus. He's pillowing his head on Jesus' chest. It's really a remarkable level of love and intimacy. Lord, who is it? It's also interesting as you read the Synoptic Gospels, all of the 12 asked, Lord, is it I? Hmm. They all wondered if it was them. Judas said it too, but the 11 who it wasn't them, they knew enough about their own hearts to say, it could be me, hmm. you know, and even John. But John's there saying, Lord, who is it? Wow. So you mentioned uh, Satan entering into mm -hmm. Judas. What do we learn, verses 26 through 30 specifically, but even uh, from this whole passage, what do we yeah. learn about Jesus and Judas and Satan and what's happening here? It is, it is almost impossible for me to give uh, give proper words to the depth of theology here in, in what's about to happen. It's, it's staggeringly deep. Let's imagine for a moment that J Judas heard the whole conversation. Mm. Lord, who is it? John asked. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I've dipped it into the dish. Then he dips the piece of bread and offers it to Judas. Let's imagine Judas knows the significance of the bread. It makes perfect sense for what's about to happen. It's like, do you want to do this? Mm. It's, it's a decision point. You're coming to a fork in the road. Here's the bread. It's the bread of the traitor. What are you going to do? Now, I remember I had a friend of mine who said, I'd be running and screaming from that piece of bread. Mm. <laughs> I would be like cut off my hand before I take that piece of bread. Wow. And so here's the thing. Satan was already working on Judas. Uh, the other gospels make it clear that Satan had pressed on Judas to go begin the process. Mm -hmm. um, this is the consummation of that process. This is the final decision point here. Mm. All right. And so he offers him the bread. And so there is a matter of human will in this. If you want to call it free will, fine. Uh, volition. It's like, is this what you want? Do you want to do this? Now, look at what's offered, a piece of bread. The scripture is the one who shared my bread with me mm. has lifted up his heel against me. So the idea here is bread is a blessing. It's intimacy. It's friendship. It's the, you know, the ancient Near East. It's sharing a meal with someone. That means we're friends. It's almost like, like a covenant together if you're breaking bread with each other. Mm. That's the significance of the Lord's Supper. We're eating bread with Jesus here. And think about the significance of feasting, sitting at table with God in heaven. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. God and man at table are sat down to be able to actually have fellowship with God. And Judas is in that inner circle. He's sharing Jesus's bread. Mm. And so here is this blessing, this intimacy as a symbol of betrayal. And again, the word betrayal, you can only betray a friend. Yeah. Can't betray a total uh, stranger. 
Yeah. That's, betrayal is not the word we would use. So you gotta get in close, you gotta have intimacy, you gotta have friendship in order to betray. And so it's heartbreaking. Now let's talk about what happened. He takes the bread and Satan mm. enters into him. Now again, I said there's deep theology here. I do not believe in a dualistic universe. I do not believe in God and God's mirror image, the evil God, Satan. Not at all. Satan is an angel who fell. He's a created being. The gap between God and Satan can't be measured. Hmm. They're not equal. They're not, they're not playing out on equal terms. And so <clears throat> Satan is a created being, and he is not omnipresent, and he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipotent. Those things belong to God alone. Hmm. So what that means is, I believe, Wes, neither you nor I have ever, ever directly dealt with Satan. I don't. I just don't think we're uh, we're small fry, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> if you're a mover and a shaker, Satan's all over that. So mm-hmm. Satan was all over Jesus, and gave Jesus his full attention. All right. Um, so it's pretty amazing here that Satan enters into Judas and enters into again. It's that demonization, the idea of possession to some degree. But there's a choice made by Judas Iscariot here. Hmm. Now it's important that Satan enters into him because I want to show you what I consider to be Satan's confusion. Satan doesn't know what to do with Jesus, and we know that because in in Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus over the issue of going to the cross. He's, he said the Son of Man will be betrayed and he'll be crucified and the third day be raised to life. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying this shall never happen to you. Hmm. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Okay, so what's going on? Well, in Matthew 16, Satan is manipulating and tempting Jesus to not go to the cross. Now he enters Judas so that, so that, that Jesus will go to the cross. So make up your mind, Satan, which yeah. is it? And so I, I say that Satan didn't know what to do when it came to killing Jesus. Hmm. Am I going to kill him or not? Kill him or not? Kill him or not? Satanic confusion hmm. going back and forth in his mind. So he knew the prophecies better than we do. He understands. He heard Jesus speak. He knew what Jesus was saying. And it's almost like he didn't believe it. He's like, I think I can kill you and still come out ahead. I think I can kill you and still win. Mm. We're talking about the most intelligent creative being there's ever been, who understands scripture better than we do. But the arrogance has blinded him. Mm. And so this is what I think happens. In the end, we will be what we will be. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He can't help but kill Jesus. And so God gives Satan over to his nature. And in killing Jesus, he destroys his own kingdom. As Hebrews 2 says, that Jesus, by his death, destroyed him who held the power of death. That is the devil. But it's a long, slow death. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It's a slow death. And so he's he's bleeding out. (laughs) And what he's bleeding out, he's bleeding out the elect. He's bleeding the elect out in every generation. They can't stop the bleeding. We just keep getting saved. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. And in the end, we're going to live and he'll die in hell forever. And so, uh, you know, Satan enters into Judas to manipulate Jesus' death. It's pretty, like I said, this is deep theology right here. It is. It is. And that decisive moment, like you said, that's now played out for 2,000 years and uh, until Jesus comes. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to keep this in mind. We're going to refer to it again when in, in John 18, when Judas comes back with the, with the uh, crowd, with mm-hmm. the Roman soldiers and the, and, the, and the chief priests and all that, and, and Judas 
is with them and draws back and falls to the ground in front of Jesus. That's a great picture if yeah. Satan's inside Judas. It's like, no, they're not equal. Mm-mm. He could he could stop you right now. He could speak you out of existence. He could say, go to hell, and you'd have to go to hell. Satan is not Jesus' equal, and he knows it, but he's arrogant, and so he's fighting him and opposing him, but he draws back and falls to the ground. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, wow, there's so much there. That's <laughs> yeah, incredible. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about how Jesus' command to Judas was misunderstood, right? That yeah. the other disciples are unsure of what he's doing. They've got some yeah. ideas, but not the right ideas. Yeah. Um, do you think it's significant, just the timing of all this, that the scene takes place at night as oh, well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and John means, I mean, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The mm. light shines in the darkness. It's There's contrary. no doubt mm-hmm. that John's using darkness here as evil. This is the hour of darkness. Mm. And so when Judas enters, or Satan enters into Judas, and Jesus commands him, with Satan in him, what you're about to do, do quickly. Again, that shows Satan's subservience. He has to ask permission. He has to be told what to do. It's it's pretty amazing. It's yeah. like don't don't take your time. We're, we're on a timetable here. Hmm. You know, it's pretty awesome. Wow. So he goes out, and it was night. There's no doubt that this is spirit. Yeah, it's the time of day, but yeah. he's given us more than the time of day. This yeah. is this is the darkest moment in human history. This is the most evil thing that has ever been done. And not just by Judas, but by the Jewish leaders, by the the Jewish nation rejecting their own Messiah. Mm. This is the worst thing that has ever happened. And yet for us, the best thing that's ever happened. You know, right on the heels of this darkness imagery comes this idea of glory again, verse 31 and 32. What do we see there in in verses 31 and 32? Right, the word glory to me means the revelation of God's attributes, putting God on display, the bright shining or the radiant display of God's attributes. So what's amazing is, and it was night, now is the Son of Man glorified. Mm. Isn't that awesome? So light shines in the darkness. And so with the darkness of the betrayal, with the darkness of the trials and the conviction, the condemnation of Jesus and his crucifixion, we will have the greatest display of the glory of God ever. This is the, the clearest display of the attributes of God. Now, I believe there are two aspects of God's glory. One is a radiant, bright, shining display that is literally visible. Like when the angel of the Lord shone, uh, and the glory of the Lord shone around, there's a visible display, such that uh, as uh, the light shining in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth, and there's no need for the sun or the moon or the light of the lamp, just bright shining, mm. okay? But then there's a glory of the mind, a glory of the soul, in which you understand what's happening. And you look at, at dark, dark Gethsemane and then dark Calvary, and you see greater light than you've ever seen. You see radiating there the love of God, the power of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, Mm. the patience of God. Every single attribute can actually most easily be found at the cross. So now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, why does he say now? Because Jesus knows that if he just keeps going on this path, on what he's doing, just physically, hangs out with the disciples, finishes the Last Supper, spends time talking to them, prays and then goes to Gethsemane, he will be arrested. And the only way he can stop it is by miracle, by like uh, turn these stones into bread. Use your power to save yourself. He won't do it. So the die is cast, basically. He's crossed the Rubicon. He is going to die. Mm. And so that's what he means by now is the Son of Man glorified. In verse 33, there's this certain tenderness in Jesus calling those present his children. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this teach us, and why does Jesus warn them that he's about to leave? Mm-hmm. Well, when he says, my children, it's interesting, because he's a young man. You know, he's in his early 30s. Mm-hmm. 
and he calls them his children. And he's like, yeah, but he's the ancient of days. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, and we don't think, we think of Jesus as brother and he is not ashamed to call us brothers, but also he says children here. And so it's, it's pretty powerful. He's speaking for the father here when he says that. Yeah. And he's, he says, look, you know, I'm not going to be here much longer. Mm. Um, and so again, I think just like the, the betrayal, he's saying ahead of time what's going to happen so that when it happens, they'll keep believing in him. That's so helpful. Mm-hmm. And right on the heels of this is this command. Mm-hmm. Uh, it begins, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says. Is the command to love one another really a new one? Mm-hmm. Well, John ruminates with this in First John. He says it's an old command, but it's a new one. Hmm. So I think love one another is an old command. It's the second great commandment that sums up the law of Moses. Clearly a very old command. As I have loved you is a new command. So Jesus as the new pattern exemplar, the new um, you know uh, yardstick or measuring stick by way by which we see love. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So we should love one another like Jesus did. So the like Jesus did. That's the new part. Yeah, and that's incredibly helpful, particularly with what he's just told them is coming. Yep, and so. You know, as we think about this kind of love and the effect of the love in verse 35 being mm-hmm. the fact that by this, mm-hmm. all people will know that you are my disciples, he tells them, if you have love for one another. Mm-hmm. How should we exhibit this love in our lives and how can we grow in this area? It's interesting. He gives all people permission to evaluate us. Mm. It's like all the worlds, all you unbelieving worlds. Yeah. I am telling you how you will know who my true disciples are. Mm. So you go ahead and evaluate these people. And if they love one another as I have loved them, then you'll know them. They're my disciples. So that's pretty powerful and it's convicting. So for us as a local church, we need to put that love on display. When churches are united and self-sacrificial and cherish one another and deny themselves uh, and sell possessions and properties so that they can put money at the apostles' feet and it's given to anyone as they have need, then people are like, those are the disciples of Jesus. But if they bicker and have factions and divisions like the Corinthian church, there's no evidence that they're Christians. That's, that's basically what he's saying. By this will all people know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how they're going to evaluate. Mm-hmm. So this becomes the top priority, and hence we see 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, if I, if I have these gifts, if I'm a very gifted person but have not love, I'm nothing. And so also the church. It's a very gifted church, but there's no love there. It is not a Christian church. Mm. And Peter comes here on the heels of this command, I think still stuck on where Jesus is going. Jesus said, uh, where I'm going, you, you cannot, cannot come. And yep. so Simon's, I think, still on that. He, he may have heard the command, but he goes back, it seems, mm-hmm. and he's, he's wondering, why, where, where are you going? Why, why can't I go with you? And he's very confident that he would follow Jesus to the end. Uh, talk about these last few verses, what's happening, the interchange between Jesus and Peter. Well, exegetically, if it weren't for this statement he makes to Peter, I wouldn't be 100% sure what he means when he says, as I told the Jews, so I now tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. So that could be the cross mm-hmm. under the wrath of God. You'll never need to go there because I'm going there for you. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you can't follow. You'll never follow. You, I'm going there so you don't have to experience that. But that's actually not what he's talking about. Mm. Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to he- heaven. That's where I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. He's talking about heaven. Yeah. 
So that's, thank you, Jesus. Other than that, I wouldn't be 100% sure. It could hmm. be the cross, could be heaven, but here it's clearly he's talking about heaven. So uh, I love John MacArthur says that for three years, Jesus never stopped that Peter didn't bump into him from behind. He was just like right, <laughs> right there at every moment. And Peter's like, I'm, I'm gonna be right there with you. Wherever you're going, I'm, I'm following. Yeah, and he does here predict uh, Peter's denial. Mm-hmm. And just speak to why Jesus would do that, the significance of that yeah. uh, as this passage closes. This is, this is poignant. And again, it's, it's more evidence that we have that the Bible truly is the word of God. It does not hide the faults of its greatest men and mm-hmm. women. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he makes this boast, a a worse one in in the synoptics. He said, even if all fall away, I never will. I'm the number one best disciple on planet earth. And here he he says, I will lay down my life for you. Actually, he would someday lay down his life for Jesus, just not yet, and he wasn't ready. And Jesus calls him on it. Will you really lay down your life for me? Do you really love me? He's gonna ask him at the end of this gospel, Mm -hmm. do you love me? Will you really be willing to lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster curls, you'll disown me or deny me three times. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of this is the lowest moment of Peter's life, and Jesus predicts it. But again, why? So that when it happens, that he, Peter, and then all of us will know that Jesus is God. Wow. Andy, any final thoughts on this passage that we've looked at again? Uh, there's so much, but I, how can I uh, avoid the statement, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As you listen to this podcast, just love someone, love your spouse, love your kids, love the other people in your church. Just love as, as Jesus loved you, love one another. That's the call for me. Well, thanks so much, Andy. This has been episode 28 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 29 entitled, He Who Has Seen Me Has Seen the Father, where we'll discuss John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.